Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Tarifato, studying second year education, and my, my father went to college, did three courses in security, then my mom just have a metric and nothing else. Then she couldn't go to varsity or rather further her education because mostly it's lack of education, lack of information. Then after affordability, yeah, no one was working at home. It's just the mother, single parent. And yeah, so I think that contributed to her not going to varsity. Welcome to our very first podcast. In the next several episodes, we aim to gain insight into a variety of very topical issues currently animating university life in South Africa. Fees, access, protest, and transformation, to name just a few. In today's episode, we focus on thinking about the historical context to higher education in South Africa. In the past six months, students have made questions of funding and access to universities a national debating point. But how did we get to where we are? What legacies from the apartheid regime are left with us today? In search of some answers to these questions, we talked to Leanne Naidu, a PhD student in education at Fitz University. Leanne did research on the history of so-called black universities in South Africa for her master's in education, and she is currently writing a PhD on the role of black consciousness in higher education. Leanne, you're here to help us understand some of the historical context to the current funding crisis in higher education in South Africa. You've done a whole lot of research for your master's and currently for a PhD in education. So you're perfectly positioned to give us some more insight into the background of how we got to where we are today. So um, what do you think is the most important thing for people to understand about the history of higher education in South Africa? I suppose the first thing to start with is to say that even though the, the impulse in the now is to think through changes, transformations, or as the new student movement have been calling it, the decolonization of the university through the lens of the economic. I think this is where we falter immediately. Maybe that's a smart way of saying I haven't done any research on the economics of the issue. Um, But I think there is a a serious uh, issue of social justice that many people tie to education. So my master's research was looking particularly at the role of um, political and social movements and how students form part of creating social movements for change. So I look 
looked at a historical case study of the black consciousness movement that was represented before they became the black consciousness movement. They were the South African student organization. Many people will know them as SASO, and many people will understand the reference when you say Steve Biko was one of the founding members of this black-led, black-only student movement. So I think what I'll do is maybe speak a little bit for people who don't know very much about the history of education for black people in South Africa. It's important to know that the colonial education system prior to the apartheid one, both of them were not interested in changing society. These education systems were basically set up to maintain society, so to maintain the differences that existed. And under the apartheid era, that also meant really pushing segregated education. Um, In 1953, there was the Bantu Education Act which meant this is an education act that's going to control what education for black people should be from primary to high school. And then in 1959, there was the extension of the Universities Act. So this was an act that said the very, very few, very small percentage of black students who were with uh, permission from the Justice Department and other problematic apartheid departments, they could go to the UCTs and the WITS universities, that those very few students could no longer be at the so-called non-racial universities that they needed to uh, be part of segregated universities. And this was when uh, the apartheid state established a number of universities for the problematic apartheid racial categories of colored Indian black. And then they further distinguished ethnically or culturally between what was black. Is it Kosa? Is it Zulu campuses? The University of Fort here is the only one who has a different history in terms of the university because it existed as a university before the 1959 Extension of Universities Act, but then was incorporated into that. So from 1959 onwards, you have a situation where black people have to go to a university that is segregated from other black people. What this means is if I'm in Cape Town and I um, speak Isi Zulu and I identify culturally as Zulu, I need to go to the University of Zululand and go and stay there and study there. Basically, you, you're creating a situation where we understand that black education was under-resourced and underfunded, but now you're also separating people out. But one of the things that people argue about higher education and education more generally is that basically the time and space created to think is what we assume will change society. And what you find under the apartheid era is that the curriculum is highly defined and created based on an assumption that black people can only do X, Y, and Z. And so what you find even higher education institutions doing is replicating society. White people will be the professionals. Certain numbers can do this, but in the majority, people are domestic labor. And the the resources to run these institutions are obviously much more limited. And there's lots of uh, people who have written on this. I, I don't go into too much detail about that. But what becomes important is that within 10 years, so by 1969, these universities are given fully-fledged university status. So the apartheid state is able to create, build, and start universities within 10 years. Um, what, What then happens is that in the 60s, 1960, you have the banning of the ANC and the PAC. And what happens, everybody gets pushed underground, there's bannings, there's arrests. And then at these institutions, black students try to continue the legacy of those organizations through student organizations. And so you have a PAC-aligned organization, an ANC one, a new unity movement one. And within five years, the first five years of these universities operating, all these student movements are extinguished because of state repression, security branch, harassment of leaders, but also a lack of resources. So you literally have students wanting to organize at these campuses, but there's a serious push against this happening. 
from 65, 66 onward, and I'll use Steve Biko as an example because most people know him. Steve Biko is part of NUSAS, which is the National Union of Students of South Africa, supposedly non-racial but majority white because at that point the majority of students in the in the higher education system are actually white. He and uh, other leaders who formed the South African Student Organization by 69, what they realized is that there's no point in being part of so-called democratic or spaces where black voices are being listened to, in inverted commas, if actually your position is not taken seriously, you are not prioritized, you are really just an add-on, like you're there to be a, a, a black face, but you're not really part of student politics or student activism. So they form SASO. And one of the key things that I think is relevant to now, because black consciousness has re-emerged in the student movement, is that they start critiquing the education system and they start understanding it as something that creates a false sense of consciousness. So they start understanding it as creating an elite level of black people who are going to be part of the system and distance themselves from poorer black people who are doing more menial types of jobs. And they resist this thing completely. So they start critiquing the education system and saying, it doesn't matter if you create these institutions, if you take a few of us in, if you put us in residences, if you're teaching us that we are better than and different to, then obviously this is going to create a problem because then we just form part of the system. In the 50s, I.B. Tabata was a, a black intellectual, also writes about um, how the education system is basically, he calls it creating slave mentality. So in the apartheid era, it is pretty clear that the education that you're getting is substandard. But what you also find, and this is what's interesting about education more generally in terms of creating time and space for people to think, a bad curriculum, an apartheid curriculum, under-resourced, bad teachers or bad people, uh, academics leading you in your classrooms, does not automatically mean that you're not going to uh, understand the context or become critical. What happens in universities and, and I mean, leading up to the 1976 um, student and pupil uprising is that the time and space of universities start to be used by students. They start creating their own curriculum. They start saying what's happening in the classroom is not liberatory. It's not about transforming society. It's about maintaining it. Now, we see a lot of that happening in the current student movement. But what people are also saying now, and this leads to the, the key question of what we're supposed to be talking about, is who has access to these institutions and what are they teaching? So when we simply look at the question of fees and we don't read that and think that with the question of what curriculum, what staffing, what language, how do we treat workers on campus, if we don't do that, then we miss a big picture. And to be honest with you, I think if we can move now to jump back and forth between the now and then, the challenge of fees, and students have said this clearly, is much more than an economic question. And so when people say, and a number of people have said this, so government has said this, think tanks around uh, education and, and whether it's viable or not. Most academics, in fact, most liberal people who, who would ordinarily say education is a common good, everyone should have access to education, have come out strongly to say we can't afford this, we shouldn't have free education. And so it's very easy in the neoliberal framework to look at that and say, oh, that's because we can't afford it. So I think there's two things I want to speak about. The one is whether we can afford it or not. And the other one is why is it so important that people believe that having something like mm. higher education for free is a problem. 
Maybe we can start with the the second question, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's important also to just put that into kind of historical perspective to understand maybe in a little more detail how resources were historically distributed and how that legacy has kind of maintained yeah. post-94. You've already explained quite clearly how historically so-called black universities were under-resourced and kind of marginalized in a number of ways and used as a tool of the apartheid state. Mm-hmm. Other universities, were they generously funded by the state? And, and how were average people, you know, your your normal citizen kind of disallowed access to those universities? Because I think understanding that might help to show how important it is that we're having discussions now about everyone's right. So many people say that the university historically and, and in current day South Africa is not made for the black child. And I think there are, there are a range of stats that show very clearly how much more money was put into white students under apartheid. I mean, it's, there's no need to even try and discuss that. It was clear. What you have now is it's not that there aren't mechanisms put in place for people to access universities. That has happened. The, the reason why our demographic has changed so much is because the ANC government has allowed for access to universities. What students are critiquing now is what kind of access and when we, when we ask what kind of access, it leads us to this question of what is a student? And, I mean, we had a banner uh, in Solomon House during the Fees Must Fall that said, I'm not a customer. Mm. I'm a student. I'm not a customer. But what you, what you seem to understand is that there is, especially now, but historically as well, people had to pay. This was a way of keeping higher education elite in the sense of exclusive and for a few Now, there has been a process of massification which the ANC government has brought about. There have been positives about this and there have been some negatives. I mean, you as a lecturers, people listening will know, classes have expanded and we haven't changed the the kind of structures sufficiently to deal with the now different understanding of who can access higher education, especially in this context. Mm -hmm. So for me, the thing is that when you imagine that you have to pay something, What that is saying to me and to other students and to other people is that there's something there around privatization. There's something there about saying, if you want to change your uh, lot in life, you need to pay either through debt to taking a loan through NISFAS, or even if you pay a small amount, you must pay something because that's what you have to do in life. Now, many people push against this. Actually, just picking up on something really interesting you said. So throughout the history of of higher education in South Africa, students had to pay fees, which says something about how the apartheid state was neoliberal and a capitalist state. And what's interesting is that we all know that didn't change, right? Into the the move into post-apartheid, into democracy, we stayed a neoliberal state, just with a kind of different political organization, but still a very capitalist state. And that those values are still obviously very visible in the higher education sector, that fees are considered natural, something that is just kind of part of the experience of getting an education is that you have to pay for it. Yeah. So when, when we think about payment, I mean, if we assume that we have to do this thing pay, like so everyone says, but someone's got to pay. The point about arguing for higher education and, and education in general to be a public good is that is about a transformative act because you're already taking away the possibility of excluding people because of financial, geographic or other conditions. But what you find people arguing, and these are our senior managers argue this, government officials argue this. I mean, we had our president say, I can pay for my son. Why would I not? Why must I not pay into the system? And the problem with that is that if you imagine that access is an individual act, 
then you can, as a middle-class person, say, I buy into the system. I'm going to pay for my child's education. But what you don't understand is if that happens in a neoliberal economic frame, which South Africa is largely following, what you end up doing is agreeing both to pay for your individual child to go to university as well as agreeing to very lax tax systems, very lax financial processes. So, so for example, people who have argued that you know we can have quality higher education, well, actually not even quality, we can have free higher education for the poor, they claim that that is possible through austerity measures. So we have to reroute what, the little that we have, we've got to reroute it, we've got to tighten our belts. I mean, we hear all our vice chancellors talking about this. But what we're not talking about is, if you really look at it from the perspective of education as a public good, and that we shouldn't be deciding this based on the numbers, you will be able to see that there are many, many sources of being able to fund this thing. But if you think in the neoliberal frame and you lead with the economic question mm-hmm. and and you really believe that it's really up to everyone to pay their way, you're never going to come up with a solution and you're never going to be comfortable with agreeing to free quality education for everyone. A lot of people have said, where would this money come from? There's some interesting research that basically says that there are some key small things that one can do to raise the 24 to 26 billion a year we need for higher education to be free. Um, And from what I've read, these are not hugely severe uh, things, except for if you are protecting middle class and rich, upper middle class and rich people. So there's a number of things. I mean, I don't know if people will be interested to hear what they are. Some of the things are, uh, for example, reintroducing a tax bracket for people who earn over a million and tax them 45%. The top tax bracket at the moment, I think, is 700,000 and above. That means someone earning 800,000 and someone earning 10 million get taxed 41%. So that's one small thing. Another small thing, you know, there are apparently about 4,000 registered super rich people. So earning incomes of 7 million and above or 700 million assets. We have 4,200 registered, but we have 45,000 of them in South Africa. If you were to just take 10,000 of the super rich and have them register, you would fund higher education. So it isn't a maths question. It isn't a question of economics. It's a question of political will. I mean, if we see the government is willing to spend money on vanity marketing projects like the World Cup, potentially an Olympics in in, um, in Durban, the I mean, the, train, the non, non-renewable, a trillion rand to a nuclear station. So, I mean, it is a case of um, what are the underlying political, social justice linked with economic standpoints that we're asking these questions from. Mm. And the other thing that's quite interesting, we had a visiting scholar who's been speaking a lot about decolonization and the possibility of change or at least decolonization in universities. And he was saying... um, Nelson Maldonado Torres a few days ago, he was saying that we think that the challenge exists only with the neoliberal uh, managers, the senior executive teams that manage our universities. But he's saying there's something about liberalism, which is followed by most of the academic staff, kind of liberal idea of the university and society, that actually both of these uh, positionalities the students are fighting against. So they're not only fighting against the high top management, because the question has come about why would why would academics say that we shouldn't be able to have free quality education for everyone? What what principle, what 
What backing, what ideology is there that's stopping them from thinking mm. this is possible? Mm. And when you speak to people, you know what they say. If you get something for free, you don't, you don't, uh, mm. first you don't deserve it or you're not going to use it uh, and you're not going to mm. work as hard as if mm. you were paying for it. Other people say, well, you know, the government has rolled out, there's empirical studies about free sc- uh, schools in rural areas. Those schools, the quality there is terrible. Automatically, an urban university mm. with highly educated people are going to end up like a rural school mm. if you give free quality education. I think those are some of the concerns, but I also think a lot of academic staff are worried about kind of their day-to-day work experiences mm-hmm. where um, they may support in principle absolutely the idea that everyone deserves an education, but what that will translate to in terms of their own workloads and investment from government and you know, staff-student ratios is something that I think concerns them. Um, But anyway, I think we're getting a bit sidetracked from the the bigger question here, which is, I mean, the the issue of free education as a social justice principle. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to just keep kind of reminding everyone who's listening about because, you know, higher education is not meant to be a privilege. It's not meant to be an elitist, especially in the kind of just society that many of us hoped and imagined would come about at the end of apartheid. So what do you think we could learn from the struggle against apartheid in this struggle for access to higher education as a kind of something that is important for macroeconomic issues, for just society? What can we take from the apartheid struggle? Because obviously some things were left behind, right? We all saw the posters in 94 promising free education. Mm. We haven't got that. What do you think we can take from from that history into understanding the current problems and trying to work out ways to resolve them? I think one of the key issues is that we have spoken about um, transformation. Like when we understood uh, the 94 moment, it was a transformative agenda. And what students have managed to do now is draw very clear distinctions between transformation or 20-odd years of, of experiencing transformation and decolonization. And it's surprising to me, maybe it shouldn't be, that um, the ANC government refuses to accept even the terminology of decolonization. Many people at the universities, if you think about it, if we are supposed to be creating different terms to the state, why is it that all our events, not all, the majority of our events on campuses that are thinking through these questions of economic, social justice, etc., they continue to use the language of transformation? They, they continue to follow what the state is doing. And we know why the ANC is doing this. The ANC is doing this because they believe in a transformative agenda, which to them means you keep the systems and you firstly prioritize black people in the system. And then you slowly think about socialism, which is supposed to be the second phase of the national democratic revolution. But what students are saying is this transformation thing is a slow trickle down way of keeping everyone where they are. And in fact, in 22 years, we've realized also that inequality has arisen. That's not only because of the ANC government. Of course, they're in a global context. But coming back to the question of what did we do? What happened under the fight for apartheid that could be brought as lessons Mm -hmm. to how we go forward? One of the key things is that actually it wasn't only the ANC and the ANC's decision-making that brought down apartheid. We have this huge narrative about the ANC being the Liberation Party, which they are, but we also forget that there were people struggling internal to South Africa that played as important a role in the transition or in the transformation or in the move away from at least legal apartheid. 
What you continue to see now is that where people, and if we take the student movement as an example, where people exist outside of that. So you create a student movement that is not politically aligned to the ANC or any of its affiliates or alliance partners. You are labeled as problematic, a hooligan, illegitimate even. And this is not learning from the past. This is a reenactment, in fact, I would claim, and this might be another program. In the transition, a lot of people were were attacked by the ANC because the ANC had to come back and align themselves as the powerful, as the all-knowing, as the ones who were going to bring uh, change. So what we can learn is that under apartheid, people mobilized at street level. They mobilized and were very invested in churches, creches, schools, youth groups. What we've also done and made the mistake of doing is sighing this big sigh of relief in 94 and going, ah, now we can leave it all to the government. We've realized now that's not possible. But where people have tried to create spaces that are alternate to what is considered legitimate forms of democracy, like you can only speak to me if you've been elected by so many people that come once a year or every two years to an SOC election. But if there are 100 or 200 people who are meeting weekly about issues, they are not legitimate because they don't fit into our system. So there is a way that we have to think more about participatory democracy. And students have said this clearly. There's ways that academics have said in terms of Senate, we need to think about how do we open this thing up to not hierarchize it such that only people who are probably the most distant from the most difficult situation or academic in an institution are making all the decisions. What we can learn is to to create more space for participation and to not respond in a way which we see both in the state and at universities that securitize things, that basically say, if you don't pay to be here, or even if you do pay to be here, if you are a rabble rouser or someone we think is not doing what we want them to do, we expel you and we take your access away. To not do that, to create a space for people and to have a slower and harder process of thinking these things through together. So democratizing the process of thinking about even the finances. So not to bring in specialists who are only economists to make these decisions. These are things that happened under the anti-apartheid movement from inside. The, the securitization thing also adds to the issue of fees and finances because we've heard people are spending two to three million rand a month to basically crush dissent. Even if one doesn't agree with how people are struggling and all the tactics, the point is what you end up doing is saying this protecting the institution as it stands now is much more important than we're going to put millions into that rather than figuring out how to support the questions that have come from below. And I think the, the, the other thing that is useful, I mean, everyone is talking about Franz Fanon and many people are saying, oh, but Fanon, Fanon, Fanon. I mean, Fanon is, someone made the comment the other day when, when someone was complaining, why do we just hear Fanon? I mean, we've heard Descartes and Plato for hundreds of years and people never came with why do we. So the thing that Fanon brings to not only to students, but to all of us who are trying to think about what kind of change do we want in the economic, in the kind of political, in the, in the philosophical, in the epistemological, what kind of change we want is change that is not driven from above, is not driven by the powerful people who are so distant from the living. So he says very clearly, you have to put, Fernand says, you need to put the last first. It's actually a biblical quote, apparently. If you take the outsourced workers and you sit and you listen to them, they will tell you the conditions. And it will be very difficult to deny that. So in our negotiated settlement here at WITS, that finally agreed that outsourcing needed to go. The, the key moment in that negotiation process was when management 
realize that they cannot answer this question with the financial first. You actually have to say this is a dehumanizing practice. If we as a university are thinking about how to model something different to society so that we can lead, we can't be replicating society. And so that was a key shift. And that can only come from really listening. So for senior professors to really listen to new academic staff members, for PhD students to listen to first years, it is a really important provocation. It's really difficult, obviously, for many reasons. But if we can try and set up those kinds of democratic spaces where people feel like they can participate more in the, not only asking the questions, but finding the solutions, I think I think we can get somewhere different. If we continue... Uh, to securitize and to bring, to swoop in uh, professionals and economists to answer these questions, we're not going to get anywhere. There is the fear of people putting the stress of all of these radical changes onto workers, students, and even academic staff. We need to understand that where the sacrifices must be made is at the top. I mean, Wits University, we have, our management has performance bonuses. This is a corporate model. We don't need that kind of thing. So if there needs to be uh, kind of bracing, while one disagrees with austerity, we should be getting more money and we should be aiming our, our appeals and our activism at the state. We also need management, leadership and academic staff to not wag fingers downwards to workers and others and say, but you are going to kill this institution if you ask for what you ask. And we need to start looking up at the state and saying, you need to see, you need to fix this thing. And at the moment, management seem to be operating as managers and not as leaders of the institution. I mean, students and, and academic staff who are making the argument for free quality education do not want to see the institution destroyed and also do not want to see the workloads of staff increased. If you take seriously that the university is a place for transformation, it isn't merely the delivering and giving out of degrees. So research is important and we have to write and we have to publish and that brings money in from the state. But the primary task if we're changing young minds is how we teach. And if you look at how the system is set up in terms of remuneration, teaching is not considered to be an important thing. And if you're not thinking about those things along with the the, um, economic questions, we're not going to change substantially. The other thing is that uh, academic staff, in my mind, and and the person who made me start thinking about this is Neville Alexander, who's an intellectual who was at UCT. He said, you know, when we're thinking about changing society or any institutions, we really need to consider what it means to think about a theory of sufficiency. This is a question to all of us if we're thinking about the economics, because obviously access and economics determine how people live their lives. What is sufficient for us in a South African context at the South African university when we understand that I think there's 700,000 university students, maybe cl- no, close to a million university students at the moment, and TVET colleges have 700,000 going up to a million. So there's 2 million young people in the system at any given time. 6 million unemployed youth out there. So when we think about what is sufficient, we can't think the university outside of questions of youth in communities. And we also have to think about what is sufficient. So this brings up this question of quality, because this is the first thing people throw in your face. They say, well, the quality is going to drop if you make things free. I mean, that is a question of the very people who are in institutions, who are making sacrifices, who are saying, we understand ourselves to be very privileged in this context, and therefore we need to bring something to the table that also uh, makes uh, us be part of the sacrifice. I mean, the other thing that people are really scared about, this idea of um, decolonization or radical change in universities, 
is that they really are afraid of changing the status quo. That's ultimately what's going on. So when you have a liberal academic saying, no, I don't think we should have free quality education, it's almost as if the question of free education is understood, and it should probably be understood as a metaphor for much more than that. So it's not just about getting access to education and being able to empower oneself. It's also about saying, why do I have to sit in a township? Why do I still not, why does my family still not have access to land? I mean, all these questions, you, you understand that they do follow. And we would love to just keep this, this question of fees and access in a silo, but you actually can't do that. Mm. I mean, I think most academic staff who are listening would feel quite strongly that they care deeply about their students and about education mm. and about the right of every bright, you know, qualifying person who should be in a university to have that right to be there to achieve what they can achieve, to get their degrees, to go on and prosper and live good lives, better lives than perhaps their families had before. This whole discussion is linked in with much more deeper anxieties about change and about the redistribution of resources in this country, um, which is something that I think academic staff, we need to kind of just sit with and, and listen to those who haven't yet fully engaged with these debates and these issues and are focusing more on the economic aspects and focusing on worrying about, okay, my first year class is going to go from 400 to 800 and um, no new colleagues are going to be hired. How am I going to cope? Yeah. You know, yes, that's a problem and that's something we need to think about, but it's all part of a bigger picture, which is like, it has been shaped by historical forces that everyone needs to recognize, need to somehow shift, Right. Is there anything else you want to kind of share or or speak to on the on the fees issue, on the decolonization issue? We've had a really wide ranging discussion. Yeah. You've shared a lot of really important thoughts. I mean, the, one of the things that, if you try to put yourself in the position of a, a poor black student, a lot of students have said, if you're just fighting for free quality education for the poor, what you automatically do then. And it doesn't affect you because you're not the one standing in the line, ticking the boxes of I have this and I don't have that. And it's a really demeaning exercise uh, because what happens is you literally are coming as a poor student and putting out your, your hands and saying, please allow me in. Whereas poor students are saying that's not what we're going to do anymore. And I think this resonates in society. Poor communities are starting to understand that they outnumber the few of us, the middle class and the kind of more... Um, uh, rich and elite people they outnumber us hugely and I think this is what people are this is what the government's scared of if, if poor students can do that at university and it's all over the media what's going to happen in communities so I mean for me doing a half measure to kind of have poor students feel like okay we're giving them a, a seat at the table it, it's not the time the, the, the international context, if you look at student movements across the country, the students are not going to accept that. And it has historically been shown that any resistance and uprising in society starts at the university. And from the university, it goes into, we can't, if we understand history, we understand that's going to happen. Are we going to try to suppress this thing here? Because if you think about it, what happened in, in the black universities in the 70s, by 73 uh, leading up to actually 72, 73, so three or four years after Sasso was formed, uh, the state expelled a lot of the top leaders. And what did they do? They went into Soweto, into townships, and they started teaching young people. That led us to 76. So we haven't even gotten to our 76 moment. That moment is still going to come. What we've seen now is the beginnings of the possibility for change. And we would hope that the powers that be respond differently to the apartheid state. 
it doesn't seem that that's what they're doing. I mean, in addition to that, you know, the for example, our vice chancellor is meeting with big banks and trying to solve our problem by getting students indebted. If we look at the U.S., I think there's a trillion rand worth of debt from students alone. This is not a sustainable, this is not a path we want to be on. So I think we really, I mean, if, if there were was a, a parting note, I would say the parting note is to not allow money, consumption, the economic to drive, at least at universities, to drive how we're going to tackle this question. We can understand if it's government doing this. You can understand if it's think tanks and economists who are making that argument. It becomes very troubling when academics, even if they are under structural conditions where they're in management, so maybe that's more understandable than the average academic pushing against this idea as if they don't believe it's going to benefit more people to be able to get into this, the very space that they're creating and supposed to be um, using to change society. Well, it's been an enlightening discussion. It's pretty clear that there is a huge legacy still with us from the dark days of apartheid. And it seems important that those of us studying and working at universities today continue to reflect on what we can learn from that legacy going forward. A big thank you to Leanne Naidu for sharing her insights and talking about her research, and for being our very first guest. We're out of time, so we'll close our podcast today the same way we opened it, with some words from a student. We ask them to tell us about their parents' experiences with tertiary education. My name is Katiso Mosa Mtembu, or just Scotty for short. I'm 22 years old, and I'm doing my master's in particle physics at WITS. Uh, my grandparents never went to university. They were, it, was a, it was an awkward time in South Africa back then, especially if you're from a, f- a small town, because I'm not from Johannesburg or a big town like that. I'm from a small town in the north of Guazulu-Natal called Freyet. And it was a bit awkward if you're from a small town that you had to almost overcome the challenges of, of having a family first. And you had to overcome those hurdles if you ever wanted to go to university. So during that time, I don't think any, any person uh, in, in the age bracket or the age group of my grandparents actually went to university from my small town. Coming here, you see, or coming here to Johannesburg, you kind of see that there are more people in that age bracket who went to university and some even older but that's due to political reasons that I'm not an expert on and so my well their experience in university is obviously absent because of that my parents on the other hand did my parents being my father they were aware of the fact that education does give one sort of a an advantage or an edge so they took my parents to university and their experience of university was very different from mine, uh, being that when you went to university, there was none of the social aspect of it that we have right now. There's none of the getting to know who you are as a person aspect. It's purely for the academic aspect so that you get in there, you acquire skills, you get out and you get a good job that pays you enough. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAO is the union representing the interests of academic staff at WITS. For more information, visit www.asao.org.za.
The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mahita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungile Mbenyane. Thanks to Leah Naidu, Sekhofato, Skati Somusa and Nati for their time, as well as Pervez Khan for his input and David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingle.